Richard Branson thinks space is for all. And I tend to agree with that mentality a lot more than the first one. So all of these things are playing out. And what we need to do now is encourage more people to start to think about what would you do with space? Because here's the reality. In the history of humanity, we've had roughly 117 billion humans in history. In all of that history, right now, the count for the number of people who've left our atmosphere is about 628 and growing by fractional amounts. Che Bolden joins the podcast this week to take Mark and me outside the atmosphere and see what the world looks like from way up in the sky. Che Bolden is a retired U.S. Marine colonel, a fighter pilot, and now a space entrepreneur. He is at the intersection of an out-of-this-world conversation between the likes of Elon Musk, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, and the world governments trying to figure out the new rules of commerce and trade in outer space. Welcome to What I See, the podcast where we uncover the stories of visionaries, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the big ideas and challenges shaping our future. And now our hosts, Mark O'Donnell and Lewis Schiff. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Lewis. How about yourself? Happy Friday. Yeah, you too. Uh, pretty good. I actually just got back from uh, visiting, building a place in upstate New York. And so I just got back late last night, kind of checking on the progress of it. So if anyone ever has built a house or is thinking about doing it, it's a lot of fun. It's not so much fun when you're in the middle of it, but it is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Now, when you're building that house, are you able to find all of the labor that you can get is moving along? Because I know that's been a little bit of a challenge for a lot of people recently. Yeah, I think so. We'll find out. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll find I'm out ex- when the date comes and goes, right? <laughs> right. I'm excellent at believing people's promises. I'm world-class at that. Yeah. I fall into the gullible category as well. <laughs> yeah. And then just dealing with it from there. That's right. But anyway, you know, Mark, this week, because I'm an avid news watcher, which is really not a compliment. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> saying a nice, good thing about myself, but I do. I tune in. I have learned over the years because the news makes me so angry that if I watch the news first thing in the morning, I don't need coffee because I just get so angry and I am up. And so to some extent helps inform our podcast because I bring the ideas I get to you from that. So of course, every single day, it's like the words space wars, space junk, unidentified objects, what's happening in the sky. And Then the story, just kind of like an onion, just one layer after another, like, is it a Chinese space balloon? Is it a hobby balloon? Are they shooting these things down with like million dollar missiles? Can't they just go up there with a knife or something? You know, there's (laughs) gotta be a way. And so, you know, all of a sudden you could claim, one could claim to be like a one quarter of an expert in this thing called the space wars. So what have you thought about this, the news of the week, the story of the week that's been unfolding you know, one little bit at a time. Yeah. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the multiple times where I have three kids and big party for, you know, take all their friends out and we gave them a huge, you know, 25 balloon or something and they let go and it went up into the air <laughs> and it's probably still floating around up there. And maybe that's what got shot down. That's right. the first thing that came to mind. Right. My kid balloons they lost just got shot down with a, you know, big missile right like well-trained pilots like circling that balloon right now and calling it back in and it's going right to the white house to talk about it right take it down take it down (laughs) nora's eighth birthday party uh balloons are you know interfering with u.s airspace 
Well, I think there's a couple things. You start to wonder how often these types of things actually occur. How often does this happen that we just simply don't know about? It? And I have to think that's pretty often. And for whatever reason, now we're hearing about this. Then I also think, is China really that stupid? Well, to, to send a flow, slow moving, you know, for that purpose, maybe. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I think the truest, well, at least there's so, so many dimensions to this. What I think mm -hmm. of is kind of a silly story, although we do have a great expert who's going to help us figure out how silly it is. But for God's sakes, we must be doing 50 things to spy on the Chinese and they must be doing 50 things back. And I suppose some of them are balloons. <laughs> Others are little bugs we're leaving in someone's hotel room. I mean, it's just all TikTok, right? TikTok, <laughs> sucking in all the data of all Americans everywhere. Right. There must be a million things happening. So who knows? But I do a little work with companies that serve the government, that serve typically, if I write about this quite a bit, is that if you were an entrepreneur, and you wanted to really, really, really reduce your risk because almost everyone you interview about entrepreneurship says, I'm afraid to be an entrepreneur because it's too risky. What if I lose my money? What if I waste time? What if I fail? There is a way to reduce risk enormously, which is to get a government contract because pretty much the government wants you to succeed. If, they, if you say, I'm going to hire 10 programmers to fix a, a database, and that's the assignment the government's given you, A, they're going to pay you. B, if you don't get it quite right, they're going to tell you to keep working on it. You know, they just, they're really good clients in a way. And so I, I do a lot of work where the entrepreneurs I work with started out in government and the biggest customer in the world is the government and the biggest mm -hmm. agency within the government is the defense department. So I end up working with a lot of companies that do something for the defense department. And one thing I do know, and this is intuitive, but I know it from first, from firsthand is the story we hear and the reality are utterly different. And it is just a funny thing because a lot of the folks I work with have classified status, which is kind of a second story that's going on, you know, who mm -hmm. classified documents, classified this, classified that, mm -hmm. is um, when you hang out with some of these business owners and they say, you know, I can't really talk about it, it's classified. And then if you hang out with them two or three more times, that you know, then they start telling you just because they want to tell stories. So you always hear that there's like what we know and what the government knows. And this is definitely one of those stories where what we know watching the news and what the government knows are very different. Oh, I have no doubt. And you have to think, like, I can't tell you it's classified, is the best story opening ever. I mean, yeah. now everyone in the room is interested what you have to say next when you open that way. <laughs> it's great, like around a bar, you know, when everyone's hanging out and telling stories and then someone says, oh, and then there's... Oh, I can't tell you it's classified. Yeah, right. Now everyone <laughs> wants to know. Yeah. <laughs> now they're trying to now they're buying you drinks so you keep talking. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So today um we invited on a gentleman who's fascinating and wonderful and a really good guy named Che Bolden. Che works out of the DC, Northern Virginia kind of Washington DC complex area. He's military, ex-military, and he'll he'll give us his background in a moment. And he's also the brains behind InterAstra. And InterAstra is essentially the community for people who want to do business in space. And before we bring Che on, I just want to share an experience I had, which is going to sound like a tangent, which is many, many years ago, got to be 15, okay, let's say 10 years ago, I brought in an expert in cannabis. Uh, he was an investment banker covering the cannabis space. And we had this present, I had about, 30 business owners in the room. And, the, and this guy from cannabis world was, you know, talking about the future of cannabis. And 
he basically made this statement, which is every entrepreneur, every business person, every person is going to have, there's going to be an angle where you could participate in cannabis if you want. There's lots of reasons why people don't want to work with cannabis, but for example, cannabis needs accountants and cannabis needs graphic designers. Like it needs everything. And a handful of people followed up on that advice and they became accountants to the cannabis industry and graphic designers to the cannabis industry. I think Che Bolden is an interaster and the space economy is very similar. Like there are many, 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 many ways to participate in the space economy. You do not have to be a pilot or actually think you're going up in space to participate in the space economy. Have you had any dealings at all, Mark, with the space economy in your work? We do work with few companies who have clients like SpaceX and all the same things. They're different parts, machine parts, clean rooms, you name it, wherever the electronics are being put together. There's definitely a an economy that's going around these private companies who are supporting the space industry. It was funny. I, a friend of mine from Strategic Coach, his name's Peter Diamandis, and I think he was the first. He runs on EOS, and I think he was the first one to have sort of this terrestrial resources idea that you can claim real estate on an asteroid. And there was a whole thing that was in Congress that uh, you can plant your flag and it's a uh, personal property. <laughs> right. So a little tangential, but uh, yep. Who knows, right? Who knows? Who knows? So we'd like to bring on Che Bolden now. Che, if you can join us. Che, so uh, thanks for joining us and uh, tell us a bit about yourself. You have an incredible background and I, I know you get shy about these kinds of things, but tell us a bit about, you come from an incredible family and you've done amazing things yourself. So what brings you to this point? Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always good to be able to talk to you, Lewis. And, and, and obviously you've picked a topic that I enjoy talking about, but getting here wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion for me. I grew up in Houston, Texas, in the shadow of shuttle is what I tell people. My father was a United States astronaut. Charles Bolden, he flew on shuttle twice as a pilot, twice as a commander, and he was also a United States Marine. And so those were two of the most impactful things on me as I was growing up. Now, I had an idea that I would probably go and become a Marine. I had no idea that I would get into the space business myself because like most people, you look at your father like, oh, that's my dad. He's cool in certain ways, not cool in other ways. And whether he's a master plumber or an astronaut, you know. I, I just want to check that. You still <laughs> say he's cool in some ways, not cool in other ways when your dad is an astronaut? <laughs> fathers are fathers. I myself am a father now and my kids will be struggling to say good things about me at certain times in the day or week or month. So I do not delude myself to think that I'm the perfect uh, human being to them. And, and my father is phenomenal in so many ways. He's my role model. He and my mother are my role models. But, you know, as a son, there's times where you have your moments. There's a funny <laughs> anecdote that maybe I'll tell you later about something like that. But, you know, so I grew up watching him, you know, do what he did. And the best part about it for me, and one of the reasons why space wasn't necessarily something I was going to get into is because he never brought work home. If you ask him today, he'll tell you he kind of regrets not being around for my sister and I. But both of us, you know, our recollections that he was always there when we needed him to be there, whether it was a soccer mm -hmm. game for my sister, football game for me, whatever. He was there. So that wasn't much of an issue. However, you know, he and his contemporaries were just an impressive group of individuals, regardless of what they did for their profession, the way they conducted themselves, the way they carried themselves left a lasting impact on me or impression on me, if you will. And, you know, these were men and because this was in the 70s and 80s, it was all men. The characteristic they had was they took care of not just each other, but the people around them. They made their mm -hmm. teams better. And so that drove me to make the decision to go to the United States Naval Academy. And I followed in my father's footsteps in that regard. Played football there for four years, ran track for four years, graduated, became a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. 
And then when I got to the basic school, I realized, you know, if you're not a Marine, it's kind of hard to understand why we're so obnoxious. But we're <laughs> obnoxious because we have these phenomenal young men and women that raise their right hand and promise to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, regardless of what happens. And you realize very quickly that you've got to do the best that you can to support that young man or woman in the job that they've got to do. And so I, I chose to go into aviation again, kind of sort of following my father's footsteps, but my eyes weren't so good. So I couldn't be a pilot. So I ended up being a backseater, but that allowed me to fly the F-18, which is the, the most badass plane on the planet. I don't care what F-35 pilots say, F-22 pilots say, I'm going to stick by that story. They can come fight me. <laughs> but I did that for a bit. And, and I did uh, all the things associated with being a Marine officer we are very focused on creating this task organized capability. And so even though I was an aviator, I still had to know what the ground folks did. I went and spent two years with them, came back, flew some more. I was fortunate enough to go to Top Gun, fortunate enough to go to the Marine Corps Weapons and Tactics Instructor course, moved into international relations briefly, which uh, was a little unusual. I went to spend three years in Spain, drinking sangria in paella, a little bit more work than that, but it was fun <laughs> nonetheless. And then when I came back, I got exposed to uncrewed on autonomous systems. I was a, it got integrated into the unmanned or uncrewed world drones. And that was fascinating because I got to see what human machine collaboration could really do. Even though the, the equipment that we had wasn't the best, the Marines were the best and they were able to employ it in ways that, you know, would just boggle your mind. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, you know, I kind of got set on this path. And so I eventually became the CEO of a drone squadron. Had a fantastic time there, was able to kind of shape a little bit of the future of the Marine Corps. And then I got moved into kind of academia. I went to the Marine Corps War College. Right after that, I went to Brookings Institution. So I was in academia for two years, got to just think about a bunch of things. And then my last job in the United States Marine Corps was actually in critical infrastructure. So I had a pretty broad base upon which to kind of jump into the next chapter of my life when I retired in 2019. I dabbled with a technology company very briefly, but ultimately, you know, both my passion and my skill set kind of came to the forefront and I decided to join my father after he left as the, I forgot to mention, he also was the administrator of NASA for the Obama administration. But after he left NASA, he kind of hung his shingle with a consulting firm and I joined him there. And it wasn't until I did that, that I started to kind of get caught into the bug of space, if you will. Mm -hmm. It was about the same time that we were starting to see commercial space come online. And you had the likes of Elon Musk, Richard Branson, you know, Jeff Bezos really throwing a lot of capital and resources into putting human beings back into space from U.S. soil. And I started to pay attention to it. We got involved in one event with a partner of ours. And that was really kind of the watershed moment for me because we were responsible for doing bookend events for this because it was in the middle of COVID, it ended up being a virtual event. But the two bookend events that we did were fireside chats that were considered keynote. And the first one, we went and, and applied some of our philosophy and theory about what the construct of that first event should look like. And so we asked three of the most highly regarded professionals in the space industry to come and be on a, on a panel uh, where my father was the moderator. And those three phenomenal individuals were Gwen Shotwell of SpaceX, uh, Ellen Stofan from the Smithsonian Institute, and then Her Excellency Sarah Alamiri from UAE. And we had them talk about what it meant to lead in this really fascinating industry that we call space. And so that was really kind of impactful because it did two things. A, we put these amazing people in front of essentially the world. I wouldn't say it was a big audience, but it was a couple of hundred people. And that's something a lot of people really hadn't seen. Three women 
considered to be leaders in an industry that has been dominated by men. And it was really powerful. Hmm. And if anybody had any doubt, it was erased in the first five minutes because they just they blew everybody's doors off. And it was an amazing conversation. Hmm. And then the culminating keynote speech that day was another fireside chat we organized, arranged with Karen Nyberg and Doug Hurley. Karen Nyberg is an ISS astronaut. She lived up there for six months. Wow. Doug Hurley, Doug Hurley, United States Marine, uh, was on the last shuttle mission to launch ever and then was on the Crew 2 mission, which was the first manned space flight from U.S. soil again. So we bookended the, the hiatus that the United States had. Also, by the way, Doug's a Marine. We were in the same squadron years and years ago, so he's a personal friend. But listening to them talk about what life was like as an astro family, they, they had their child while they were astronauts. They raised him, took him to Russia, all kinds of things. They, they, they opened my eyes to all the other things about space that we really haven't paid attention to because I heard you on your intro, Lewis, you know, most people think space is about pilots, astronauts, and engineers. But the reality of it is, and much to your cannabis analogy, there's a need for all of these other things to support this economic driver. And what we've eventually done now is we've evolved into thinking about this in the lens of what a lot of people are very accustomed to. And, and Lewis, where you work squarely, is the business of space. And so after that event that we participated in, we saw that there was a need to bring people together to talk about things that are not traditional or institutional when it comes to space. Traditional space is launch, satellites, human spaceflight, Earth observation. Institutional space is NASA, ESA, JAXA, Roscosmos, national level entities. SpaceX is an anomaly uh, when you talk about it in that context, as is Virgin Galactic, as is uh, Blue Origins. And so, but nobody was really looking at where the other opportunities were going to be. And so we saw that the kind of spirit of entrepreneurship that's ingrained in every Marine because we we push responsibly down to the lowest level we can kind of compelled me to, to put my my ring in my hat in the ring and, and try something I'd never tried before. I was uh, scared. Uh, there's various ways to say it. You can amuse your imagination when I got into it, but here I am <laughs> a year and a half later and we're, we're moving forward with Interastra. So Interastra, one sentence version is you're trying to bring together all the uh, influencers around the space economy to figure stuff out together. So Interastra will be the global public square for the business of space. Awesome. Better said, much better said. You put more work yeah. into that than I just did. So then, Jay, help us out just uh, because we asked you on. Well, first of all, it's always important to remind innovators, visionaries, and entrepreneurs that there is great opportunity to be had else everywhere. And certainly space. I mean, that could be a, a career for several generations to come, you know, for yeah. some people. But what has the news of the last few weeks been to your industry? I kind of want to start with this. Are you guys laughing about it? Or is there something serious happening up there that we should be talking about? There's plenty of things serious that we should be talking about. But the, the stuff that's made the news of late, I wouldn't say it's laughable. It's interesting, you know, to see what interests people. And, you know, when you, again, it was kind of, I was having a conversation earlier about ChatGPT. You know, you get ChatGPT spits out something that the average person's going to go, oh, my God, that's amazing. But if you're somebody who's an expert in that field, you look at what ChatGPT puts out and go, eh, that's not bad. Close. Right. You, yeah. know? you know, so the same thing happens with the media. They've got to appeal to the masses. And unfortunately, the way our media has evolved over the past couple of decades is they tend to, to slant towards the sensational to get people to watch, you know, get them to keep tuned in. And so the combination of the unknown or uncertainty associated with UAPs, unidentified aerial, what, I don't even remember what UAP stands for. It's fairly new. What you used to call UFOs, unidentified flying objects. It's been rebranded. Um, it yeah. is rebranded. You know, they've got a good branding officer, which actually 
at some point we'll probably get to it, but that's one of the things about space that's been woefully lacking is we are just really, really bad at the narrative around space. And so UAPs, UFOs, ETs, aliens, all these different things that people have associated with space as we evolve, uh, we're not telling that story very well. And, and so different people are thinking different things. But when it comes to the modern news about what's happening, both my, my military background and now my, my familiarity, you know, waist deep level in the space industry is that it is a compelling story that is not being told completely for a variety of different reasons. It'll pass in about a month, maybe, and then we'll be on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking about the business of space. And, and we know when the first attempt in the 60s led to a load of innovation that we all use today, and, and it's really impacted the daily lives of, of everyone with our phones and and global communications and all those different things. What would you say is, is the business of space? What's the outcome of Elon Musk and Richard Branson and NASA and all the work that's there? How is that going to impact our daily lives in the effort to colonize Mars or whatever it might be? <laughs> right. So the first thing I want everybody who's listening to understand is, you know, A, you're listening to somebody, I'm a history major and a Marine. You know, those are two areas that most people kind of go, eh. so here I am in this in this emerging area, but it's because it has so much opportunity and it's going to create creativity. It's going to require creativity and ingenuity in order to make the most of it. I equate the Musk's, Branson's, Bezos of the world to akin to Isabel and Ferdinand or Howard Hughes. And I use those two specifically because if you go back to, you know, the days of yore, Isabel and Ferdinand, very, very well endowed, if you will, financially and, and with resources. They sent Christopher Columbus and other explorers out to, to chart the high seas and explore. Spent a lot of money. Back then in Spain or the Iberia Peninsula, plenty of people had said, you can spend your money, your, your wealth, and use your monarch, your influence as the monarchy to do other things. Why are you sending people over there? Well, if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have had global trade at the time that we had it. Fast forward to the early 20th century. Howard Hughes, well known to be a very eccentric billionaire, spent gobs of his resources on aviation endeavors. But because of that, I just flew on a red eye from L.A. not but an hour and a half ago, and it didn't cost me anywhere near as much as it would have had we had he not done what he did. So when you talk about what those billionaires are doing today, they're very similar. They're they're pathfinders. They're setting the stage for the future and they're bringing down the cost, whether you agree with their reasons or not. In a couple of years, that will be irrelevant. Each one of them, believe it or not, has a, a compelling altruistic reason for doing what they're doing. It's not ego like everyone thinks. Oh, let me rephrase. There is some ego in there. However, <laughs> at the core of it, you know, Elon Musk thinks we're a multiplanetary species. That's an that's a noble endeavor. I don't agree, but it's still a noble endeavor. You know, Jeff Bezos wants to clean up the planet. He wants to take all the nasty, dirty, brutish things that we do here that's destroying the, the, the environment and take it off world. Richard Branson thinks space is for all. And, and I tend to agree with that mentality a lot more than, than the first one. So all of these things are playing out. And what we need to do now is encourage more people to start to think about what would you do with space? Because here's the reality. In the history of humanity, we've had roughly 117 billion humans in history. In all of that history, right now, the count for the number of people who've left our atmosphere is about 628 and growing by fraction, you know, by fractional amounts. So mm-hmm. 
not even decimal dust on humanity, smaller than decimal dust, the number of people who've left the planet. In order for us to even make an appreciable dent in that, we've got a long, long way to go, go. So we need to figure out how space is relevant for us here on terra firma. And that's an economic thing for the most part. How's it going to make people's lives better? And that's what we try to focus on is finding equitable opportunity that, that is inclusive in the way we're moving into this, this new version of space. And to us, that's the business of space. So we have a lot of uh, frameworks already as we go into this uh, 21st century of space economy. We have things called nations. Mm-hmm. We have things called companies. We have a concept of wealth. We have a concept of private property. So how are all those things playing out up there? Nations, wealth, private property, companies. Those are human created frameworks. They're not, na- they're not from nature. So how is that affecting our process? It's muddying the waters. You know, that's a poor analogy. Well, it's a really good analogy because the closest thing that we know to space are, the, are our oceans. You know, that's another area that's completely and totally, we fractionally explored that. So we know very little of it. But the same way we've approached the oceans, which is in a messy manner, we're approaching space. There are better ways to do it. We need more people at the table as opposed to what we've done up until this point. You know, the universal law of the sea, that's not exactly what it's called, but there's, there are UN conventions out there that govern the way that, that nation states are supposed to interact on the high seas. That framework there has got a lot of really good lessons, pro lessons, but con lessons as well as how we are supposed to do that. You know, there are treaties about the moon. There are treaties on how we get stranded astronauts back. There are treaties on how we're supposed to deorbit all kinds of debris. The problem with it is we don't have enough people around the globe that are coming from a sovereign perspective that are agreeing on the right way to do it. And it's very much like the, the energy discussion. You know, there are certain nations in the world that have, have done really bad things and gotten to where they are. And so now they can sit in a position and say, hey, we've got to be more responsible. But that doesn't do anybody any good if they're in a, in a developing country. Same thing about space. There are certain nations that have been there for a while and say, oh, well, this is the way that it should be done. But if you're Nigeria or Kenya or Singapore and you're trying to get up into space and you don't have the resources that the United States, Russia, China, ESA or the Europeans have, then you're going to go by hook or by crook just to get out there because you don't want to be left behind. So your question, Lewis, is is one that that requires a lot more comprehensive thought, not not the the folks who've been in the room up to this point have gotten us to, to this point, And it's now for us to expand it out and get more people talking about it. Now go the other way. So we spoke at the beginning of, the, of this uh, podcast how the space economy is an opportunity for everybody. How does a, a lone visionary, a lone entrepreneur get in the game? Yeah. So, you know, I made mention of, of traditional space. And when I talk about or when I think, and mind you, this is my singular perspective, you know, when I think about where the opportunities are, it's actually not in those traditional areas because there are well-established players. You're not going to break into the launch sector. Just ask some of the, the launch companies that are that are teetering on insolvency right now. Satellites, there are more and more players in the satellite space because of microsats and cubesats. But human spaceflight, there are very, very few nation states, let alone private companies that have the capital to do that. And so that's going to be a long time before people get into that. And then the last one is multiplanetary exploration. That one kind of goes hand in hand with the human spaceflight. It's just too expensive. Space is hard and space is expensive. But what about all the other things that we do in our day-to-day lives? Who's insuring the private companies? Who's investing in the private companies? Is there an agricultural gain to be had in zero or low G? What type of of education is required for these new jobs that are coming up? Health and human performance. What have we learned from half of a century 
of space exploration? How can that apply to us here on terra firma? These are things that people need to start looking at. I read in a Harvard Business Review article before Christmas where it said, if you don't have a space strategy, then you're behind. And I agree with that. The very first flagship event that we did for InterAstros, we ran a retreat, not for attribution on the content, not necessarily on the participants last spring. And the participants in there represented 29 different you know, verticals in the business space. We had clothing apparel people there. We had sports people there. We had entertainers there because there's going to be a role for all of them to play. And they also act as influencers. And so if the young people of today hear their their favorite you know, athlete or their favorite artist talking about their wonder and their excitement and amazement with space, that will get them interested as well. And then there's a young woman who has a company that is an interior designer for spacecraft. You know, so we've been talking with her about, all right, well, what exactly is it that you do here? And she explained it. And I was like, oh, my God, I would never would have thought about that. Long duration space flight can mess with the psyche pretty well. So if the accoutrement around you and the, and the aesthetics are not something to stimulate you, you're going to go cuckoo. Same thing goes with food. You know, food diversity and food security is something that really has to has to be thought about. We have another partner company that that is in the cellular agriculture business. They 3D manufacture meat. Part of the reason for that is because long duration space flight, you can't lift a bunch of cows, can't take a whole lot of water. So someone has to come up with a, a very ingenious way to provide nutrition and food. And that's probably going to be via 3D manufacturing. So they've done a lot of work to replicate what nature has created in what we will call a synthetic form. But once it's produced, it is almost a exact, you know, down to the DNA replica of what you'd get off of a cow or a lamb or something like that, which wow. begs the question, if you're a vegetarian, would you eat it? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good right. question for another topic. It depends on your reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now to the topic of the news, I'm just curious, every time I seem to turn on the news, there's something that I just feel is ridiculous. So I'm wondering with your the intersection of all your expertise, you could help help us figure out why are they setting up fighter jets to shoot down objects in the sky? Is there some other way to pull these things down or get a bead on them, a, a scissor that they could snip? There's got to be something. <laughs> a BB gun. And a, a BB <laughs> gun. You know, the, the very first one that we heard about, you know, the Chinese weather balloon, that was at 66,000 feet. There are very few resources that can reach 66,000 feet. If we had a, a, you know, I don't know what that equates to in, in meters, because like I said, I'm a Marine and I'm a history major. But if you had a knife that was that long, sure, you probably could have done it. <laughs> um, the, the only thing that, that we have, you know, in the inventory are our, our tactical fighter aircraft or, or bombers of the sort. And so, you know, there's an old saying, at least it's not just the Marine Corps that says it, but it's pretty prolific in the Marine Corps is when all you have is a hammer. Or, you know, everything looks like a nail, right? Right. And so in this particular case, that's what they did. Now, you know, you hear all of the, the talking heads talking about, well, they should have done it this time and that time. There is always more to the story. And, and I can tell you from, you know, just from various chapters in my past, that was not a missed opportunity. There was nothing. There was no naivete. There was no lack of resolve. There was a very specific purpose behind allowing the time to transpire and, and the the time and the place of the choosing to, to take that thing down is all purposeful. So mm -hmm. people can blow hard all they want, but the United States is in a better position today than it was prior to that happening. We had a little egg on our face, but the reality of it is this type of thing has been going on for a very, very long time. And it's there, there are various terms for it in different industries, but it's it's a pretty standard thing. Now, the, th the stuff that's been since then, you know, the thing that was at 14,000 feet, the other one was at like 20,000 feet. 
taking something out of sky is actually a lot harder. You know, I, you know, I mentioned I went to Top Gun and I didn't think that that would come up in this, but we spend a lot of time and a lot of taxpayer dollars teaching, you know, naval aviators and the Air Force has their equivalent to be able to shoot things down because it's not an easy thing to do. It's really funny to me. My background in drones always makes me pay attention to some of the counter drone technology that's out there. And I love listening to people talk about, well, just take a shotgun. Mm-hmm. How many people can go to a skeet range and hit a skeet target, let alone try and hit, you know, a drone. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. But, and I don't mean to be an armchair expert, which, cause I, cause I know zero about this, but even a drone versus a manned aircraft, why didn't they send a drone up to do that? Well, you just pulled on my heartstrings because I'm a drone person and there are plenty of things that we can do with uncrewed systems that we're doing today with crewed systems at a fraction of the cost. Sure. That is a, a distinct possibility right now because so the, the federal aviation regulation hasn't quite caught up to drones. It's trying, it's trying to get up there, but the reality of it is there are a lot of limitations when you don't have a person sitting inside of the aircraft when that, when their cockpit is disaggregated from their airframe that puts into question issues of accountability and and whatnot. And so we are very reluctant as a nation to fly drones over the United States for a variety of reasons. You know, drones have a a bad rap for being spy planes. I mean, a drone just by definition is something that goes and, and does its thing. You can use them for all kinds of things, but we're still kind of stuck in this dogma centered around what drones are spy planes that we don't want to spy on American people. So we we typically don't put some of the more sophisticated assets up above the United States mm. for purposes like that. So, yes, a drone would have been a better choice, much, much better choice. However, you know, certain regulations and just institutional baggage keeps us from doing that. Mm-hmm. There's this whole layer of, um, again, these are things that I've learned in the past little bit of time, 66,000 feet. I never thought about it. But there's something where the atmosphere ends and space begins. And I guess there's just a gray area between those two. The Carmen line, which is debatable, depends on who you're talking to. The Carmen line is the defining line between low Earth orbit and the atmosphere. And uh, there's two different numbers that are out there. So this is sort of the blend of all the questions, which is, you know, we've got things like nations. We've got things like companies. We've got Mm -hmm. intellectual property. Everyone's trying to acquire. What's the fight over right now? Is the fight over space? Is the fight over 10,000 feet below space? What's the real fight over right now? The same fight we've had for time and memoriam is resources. Mm-hmm. That, that's it, pure and simple. Nation states right now are trying to find their competitive advantage over, over their peers. And the resources that are available to us, if we can find a way to master our ability to get to and from space, the first person there is going to have the high ground, so to speak, and, and that's what they're striving to do. One of the things that's been a problem with the space discussion period is, is explain to people the significance of it. So your question, Lewis, hits that point. You know, what, what is everybody going for? That means different things to different people. The, the climate discussion is a very good analogy for what not to do. When you tell someone who used to work in a coal mine in West Virginia or a steel mill in Pennsylvania, we go out to space because we're an exploring species. They don't give a flip about that. Their concerns are elsewhere. So you've got to be able to speak to them in the language in which they're ready to receive it at the time in which they're ready to receive it. This is my assessment. The last time somebody gave us a compelling argument as to why we should go to space and and galvanize people around it was John F. Kennedy in 1962. We go to the moon, not because it is easy. We go because it is hard. He appealed to this sense of competition and national pride in Americans at that time, because we're at the height of the Cold War. 
that was the reasoning. But again, that was a reason that went back to resourcing. We knew that getting to the moon first would give us an advantage when it came to further exploration into space. So when it really, it, it always comes back down to the same thing. You know, historians and, and philosophers have studied it for decades and millennia. Human beings are always going to fight over resources. And that's what space is to people right now. It's, it's, a, it's another source for critical resources. If we could figure out how to share that, because last I checked, space is defined as an infinite thing, then we'll be okay. Have you seen the movie Arrival? I've either you seen that movie Arrival. No, no have uh, not. One of the best movies ever. So Amy Adams is in it and aliens come to the planet and Jeremy Renner, she's this linguist. And so they bring her in to kind of figure it out. Part of the way she, it's it's a movie about, deter, or the book, I think it was the book was about determinism. I'm getting off topic, but the point of it is <laughs> that movie, it's a space movie. It's with aliens in it, but it taught me about this concept of zero sum. You know, we all know zero sum from the concept of, you know, if you only have a finite amount of things, then you can only give out so much. Well, there's a counterpoint to zero sum. It's non-zero sum. So if you're, let's say your mother puts a pie in front of you and, you, and tells you and your siblings, hey, here's a pie, have at it. That pie has got a limited amount of resources. But if your mother turns to you and says, hey, these are the ingredients that go into that pie. This is what you do with those ingredients. Then you can make pies for days. That's what I see space as, is if we figure out what the ingredients are and teach people how to use it, those resources they may not be limitless, but we'll have a really, really hard time exhausting those resources and we don't have to, to divvy it up. The, the last thing I'll say on that, you know, and my father taught me this one, you know, and can we swear on this? Is that okay? Sure. Okay. You know, we spent an entire lifetime learning how to kill people and blow shit up. You know, now it's time for us to flip the script around and do the exact opposite, you know, yeah. save lives, build things. Space is a perfect environment, which we can start to do that where we kind of sort of get a reset. But it's fragile. You know, we might get it wrong. We've got people out there who are looking at it as a competition. And I hope that we can persuade them to think about it otherwise. Yeah. And, that, and that's really the the swing from scarcity to abundance, right? I mean, it's just an abundance yep. amount of resources, non-zero sum. That's a pretty exciting world if you can get 8 billion people to think in those <laughs> terms. Yeah. You know what? I'll settle for 1 billion right now. And yeah, for sure. <laughs> or or yeah. even 1 million. We have, we don't have 1 million who can think in a consensus yeah. when it comes to that. So, so now my last question, Shay, is um, of these uh, innovators and visionaries and entrepreneurs, Elon, uh, Bezos and Branson or someone else, uh, who's your money on? Who's really serious about this and who's really got a focused and aligned look, mission? Look, look, they're all serious about it they, and they all have very good missions. A little concerned for one of them in particular, just because of the things I'm hearing. It's not for lack of vision, not for lack of purpose. They just weren't structured properly. The, the person. Why would you tell us who that is? <laughs> I don't want to get sued. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I don't have any inside information, so there's nothing I could, I could be held accountable for. But what I will say in a more positive note, let me, let me back up a little bit for a second, because one of the things I talk about narrative and at the retreat last year, one of our sessions we did was on the Billionaire Boys Club. And that was where I was able to make that analogy, you know, Isabel Ferdinand and whatnot. And so a lot of people get very angry that the face of space right now is really, really rich white men. It is what it is. And, and should it be different or could it be different? Absolutely. And that's at the core of what we're trying to do is make it a more equitable place to go. But I cannot deny that they have resources, they're putting their resources against a, what I consider to be a very noble cause. Now, I say all that because there's one name that I want everybody to, to remember, because I think he's doing very quietly, he's doing more for the future of space than, than the other folks. His name's Jared Isaacman. Jared is a, is, a, is a billionaire himself, 
he started Shift 4 Payments, but Jared started his foray into space with, with Inspiration 4. I don't know if you were familiar with that, but no. this is almost two years ago now. In partnership with St. Jude Hospital, they set up a, a fundraising campaign to, to help with childhood cancer through St. Jude's. And they've put four civilian astronauts into orbit in a Dragon capsule. And that was a phenomenal effort. Now he's in a program called Polaris Dawn, which is expanding, extending space health and, and performance studies. They're going to do the first private spacewalk. I think that's batshit crazy, but they're going to do it. A lot of risk in that. <laughs> but, you know, Jared is a very low key, very intentional individual, I think. And I'm biased because I know him. I think he's doing probably the most right now of the big names. Then Cam Gaffarian over at Axiom is quietly doing a lot of really good things. Those are individuals that don't have the same ego to throw themselves out there in the public mm -hmm. eye and, and for good or bad, talk about or try to be the face of space. But even that being the, the case, I'll go back to what I said earlier. All of them have very solid, noble objectives. They're different. Some people may agree with them. Some people won't. But at least they're, at least they're driven by their convictions that part. I will say in all honesty, I think, you know, I can say a lot of things about Elon Musk, good or bad. The one thing I'll say is if people think that, you know, he's doing this because he wants to be a make a big grab for a big share of this business. SpaceX is doing a lot of really good stuff with low margins. They're not going and trying to make a profit. They're trying to make a difference. They're trying to get there faster. And, and Gwen Shotwell is an amazing person. I mean, her her visionary leadership for SpaceX is what's keeping them ahead of everybody else. It's a, it's, it's a pretty good organization. Amazing. Well, Che, thank you so much for uh, deconstructing what's happening out there and introducing us to what's happening above our clouds. And uh, for our listeners, interastra.space is the website. And I know folks who are involved with you from my community, from the Birthing of Giants community, they've gotten involved with Interastra mm -hmm. and they're learning a lot and they are finding a lot of opportunity there for sure. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And we're hopefully we can get this community grown quickly. We've got a strong, solid growth plan, but it starts with getting people interested and in, in putting up that demand signal. So I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk about that. Thanks, Jay. Thanks and get some sleep. All righty. Thanks. I appreciate <laughs> it. You guys have a good one. You too. Thanks, Jay. Well, I was hoping for some... I don't know, illumination or some clarity. I got a little bit. I think, I don't know, what's happening there is so much and so big, I can't really get my head around it. It's crazy. I mean, I'm humbled by his knowledge on space. There's just so much going on that, to your point, have no idea what's what's happening really. And yeah, lots of opportunities. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. But if they need a graphic designer or an accountant, I can make some recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but can they design the interior of a shuttle for you right. know 30 years right. in a capsule? <laughs> and here's the big question. Can they run space on EOS? I think they might be able to, you know, discipline and accountability and team health. I mean, seems big vision. Seems, seems to be that it might work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, Mark, thanks for joining us and thanks for being my partner in this uh, endeavor to learn more about space today. Yeah, thank you, Lewis. Che was amazing. Onward and upward. You got it. Thanks for listening to another episode of What I See, where we explore the stories of the visionaries shaping our world. We hope you found insights and inspiration from our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and continue to be a part of the conversation. See you next time on What I See.